Welcome to the Labor History Podcast, produced by Ian Hudson. I'm Avery Ware. This talk is called Social Justice Unionism, Part 1, The Black Freedom Struggle and the Labor Movement. During the L.A. teachers' strike early this year, 60,000 people marched in the street. But there's only 34,000 teachers in the union. Where did the other 26,000 people come from? There were organizations supported by the union. Padres contra la privitación. Parents against privatization. There were high school students organizing in the schools against random searches of students, which, have, which are racist. One of the demands of the strike was for legal services for undocumented students. And not only did the union link with people doing these, this organizing, they made their demands demands of the strike itself, an end to the random searches. And, and uh, they demanded legal services for undocumented students. They won both of those things, and the district is now hiring a dedicated full-time attorney to help with legal services for the undocumented. Of course, they also demanded a raise. They demanded class size reduction, which will ultimately amount to seven less students on average per class. They removed a clause in the contract known as 1.5 so that there can be no more emergency class size overrides by the district. The district can't say, hey, emergency, so we can have a higher class size limit. The district said, we won't bargain on non-contract issues, but they caved on that. 83% of parents supported the strike, despite the UTLA school board opposing it, and they're a majority of Democrats. Former Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, also a Democrat, said that the strike was wrong. But two-thirds of parents kept their kids out, and that caused $18 million in net daily losses. The L.A. teacher strike thus showed that a union can form an alliance of mutually supported demands with non-union social justice organizers and build a more effective and popular strike as a result. This is not a new idea. In fact, whether or not to pursue this approach is one of the central and most intense debates in the labor movement in the last hundred years. I'm calling this session Social Justice Unionism Part 1 because we can't cover labor's relations with all the major non-union social justice struggles in one session. Each one has its own different history worthy of its own session. That's why I'm going to focus for Part 1 on what I will argue has been the most pivotal social justice issue for labor, the black freedom struggle. U.S. society, and thus U.S. capitalism, was built on disempowered labor, the expulsion of the native population, black slavery, the theft of Mexico and expulsion of Mexican-Americans, and unpaid household labor by those who raise children. Those inequalities are built into the formation and functioning of U.S. society. So they're permanent issues, and fighting for justice isn't easy. 
That's why progress in the labor movement has not been gradual and steady. When there's been progress, it has come in the great leaps, the strike waves and the mass organizing drives that were linked to social movement uprisings of the time. In the 1890s, the third party peoples or populist movement united small farmers and urban workers in a black-white mass struggle against farm foreclosures and for union rights and public services. The movement was actually strongest in the South, where there are stories like one in which a black populace came to preach in the town, came to lecture, recruit people to the cause, and soon found himself threatened by a lynch mob. Somehow word got out, and thousands of People's Party farmers, many of them white, converged to prevent the lynching. People's Party leaders like Tom Watson argued that working people should reject racism as a divide-and-conquer tactic and instead unite against the bankers and railroad companies. But in 1896, the People's Party movement dissolved itself after endorsing Democrat William Jennings Bryan for president. Bryan lost anyway, and the full legalization of Jim Crow came only in the years after this, as the Southern political class sought to keep the races from uniting again, playing, of course, on white racism in the process. Tom Watson himself became a virulent segregationist, racist, democratic politician. In the 1930s, as we learned before in previous discussions, the labor movement won our greatest successes, winning the New Deal and organizing mass production industry. The Jim Crow South, not coincidentally, avoided all of this. So, in 1946, the Congress of Industrial Organizations organized what they called Operation Dixie, and that was a massive organizing drive across the South. But whereas the more rank-and-file and, and socialist-led organizing in the 30s took a social justice unionism approach, incorporating black workers' anti-racist demands into the broader campaigns, the more moderate Democratic Party-allied union leaders of the early Cold War refused to embarrass the ruling Southern Democrats by doing this. At the time, the South was a one-party state in which Democrats held all offices and were thus the party of segregation. But these leaders were allied with that same Democratic Party in the North. And as a result of their refusal to confront them, Operation Dixie fizzled. And that ended the great wave of labor movement advance. And it ensured that the South remains a low-wage non-union for employers to this very day. Another thing we talked about before in a previous session is that the next great wave of union organizing came in the 60s as the black freedom struggle spilled over into unionization via strike wave in the public sector, especially in the uh, AFSCME, the Association of Federal, State, County, and Municipal Employees, and in the American Federation of Teachers. Unionization as a whole had been in gradual decline from its 1954 high point of 35 percent. But even by 1979, it was still at 25 percent. 
and the rising tide of the black freedom and other social movements in the 60s uh, and the labor movement momentum that was part of that was broken in the era of the conservative politics of the 1970s. Those conservative politics centrally included mass incarceration and the war on drugs. In 1970, there was about 100,000 people in prison in the USA. Today, it's over 2 million. Tough-on-crime politics were the centerpiece of Nixon's campaigns when he adopted the Republicans' Southern strategy, which meant winning control of the White House and Congress by appealing to a racist white backlash against black freedom to turn the Democratic one-party system in the South into an eventual one-party Republican system. This changeover played out over decades, fueled by the racist politics of tough-on-crime and mass incarceration, and it spread harsh sentencing laws and prison funding uh, far beyond the southern states, allowing Republicans in power to also implement massive, unpopular social spending cuts and to bust unions like Reagan did in 1981 with the air traffic controllers. The Democrats, especially from Clinton on, did the same things to catch up. Clinton fired hundreds of thousands of federal government workers under his Reinventing Government program, and he cut social spending through welfare reform. He accelerated mass incarceration through the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act as well. By 1995, the average hourly wage in the U.S. was 19.1% uh, below what it was in 1973. And today, the unions represent 10.5% of the workforce. The big lesson from the populist era, from the, how the 30s ended, and from how the 60s momentum ended, was that the momentum was always associated with black-white unity, and the defeat in each case came with dividing that unity through racist policy. So, let's get now more to the history of uh, the uh, black struggle within the unions. As we learned in our first session, unions began in the 1790s, before mass production industry, and when wage work involved highly skilled manual labor. Unions before the Civil War were craft unions, whose strength was skill, not numbers, and who therefore practiced exclusionary policies, including, usually, white supremacist job exclusion. The racist exclusionary logic of craft unions eventually pushed its way into the AFL. The AFL was formed in 1886 amid the rise of mass production industries, um, but it failed to adapt to new economic realities by continuing the craft union model, unlike other unions like Knights of Labor at that same time. Still, the AFL started off by expelling and placing sanctions on unions that refused to allow black members. They had a progressive anti-racist policy to some degree. But when mass unemployment and the economic crash of 1893 wiped out union membership by about 50%, the AFL was in a severe crisis. They solved that crisis in their own view by turning conservative. They gave up on strikes. They began making sweetheart deals with employers. 
They got rid of union democracy in favor of dictatorships by highly paid staff bureaucracies. And increasingly, they accepted Jim Crow segregation. In the early 20th century, the non-AFL independent unions called the Railroad Brotherhoods, which were craft unions dividing up the work on the trains between themselves, actively sought union contracts that forbade the company from hiring black workers. And they didn't just keep black workers out. They attempted with considerable success to drive black workers out of these jobs. And keep in mind, black workers were concentrated in the railroad crafts because they were some of the few skilled jobs black workers could be hired for. At the AFL leadership level, after the 1890s recession, Samuel Gompers, president, increasingly ag agreed to black worker demands for union membership only by putting them in the so-called federal labor unions. These were segregated unions, controlled directly through the AFL, which allowed AFL unions to keep blacks out while allowing the AFL as a whole to claim that it never abandoned its anti-racist principles. Among AFL unions, one of the exceptions was the United Mine Workers of America, which was always organized as an industrial union embracing all workers in the mines, not a craft union. In the early 20th century, perhaps the most terroristic Jim Crow period, the mine workers had thousands of black workers in integrated locals together with whites and with many black miners holding union offices. Amazingly, this was true even in deep south states like Alabama. But as the decades wore on, even the United Mine Workers began to be less inclusive and welcoming of black members, who increasingly protested their exclusion from leadership and even their inability to speak. Another exception in the AFL was the 10,000-strong Union of Sleeping Car Porters, an all-black union organized by A. Philip Randolph, famous for founding the New York-based socialist newspaper, The Messenger. When the CIO broke away from the AFL in 1936, its founder, John L. Lewis, invited Randolph to bring his all-black union into the CIO. But Randolph, who was later a close collaborator with Martin Luther King Jr., believed the fight against segregation in the CIO could be won without his union's help. So he opted to stay behind inside the AFL, where he was a thorn in the side of the leadership, demanding investigations of discrimination by AFL unions, proposing resolutions to ban segregation at AFL conventions year after year for decades. He did both of those things. But it would be wrong to blame racist exclusionary policies solely on the AFL or solely on craft unions. Many locals of the United Steelworkers, one of the big three industrial unions founding the CIO, kept aside all the better paying and less dangerous jobs for whites only. After McCarthyism drove the socialists and communists out of the auto workers union in the 50s, the same thing increasingly happened in that union. Really, refusal to accept black members and restricting black access to skilled jobs wasn't ended until the 60s and 70s, in part because black power caucuses like the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement inside the auto workers union 
brought the black power movement against racism into the unions. There is also a disproportionately influential left-wing and often revolutionary labor movement tradition of militant anti-racism. I say it's been disproportionately influential because though it was historically a minority, its strategies have won the day when struggle from below is rising, which is also when the labor movement makes gains. In 1892 in New Orleans, there was a 25,000 strong general strike centered on dock workers that united large numbers of black and white workers despite attempts to shame whites for standing with blacks. There was another such strike in New Orleans in 1902. In 1911, the radical industrial workers of the world began a heroic organizing drive of timber workers in Arkansas and surrounding Deep South states. The IWW always gave an anti-racist education to its white members, and the union grew with more or less equal biracial membership among the timber workers. But it was illegal for black and white to congregate in the same meeting space in the Jim Crow South. When the union held its founding convention in 1912 in Louisiana, IWW leader Big Bill Haywood spoke, saying, quote, you work in the same mills together. Sometimes a black man and a white man chop down the same tree together. You're meeting in a convention to discuss the conditions under which you labor. Why not be sensible about this and call the Negroes into the convention? If it's against the law, this is one time when the law should be broken. The convention followed his advice. The Brotherhood of Timber Workers affiliated to the IWW. And though the massive strike that followed was defeated, it required beatings, jail, and killings to do it, because the unity of the strikers was never broken. When the CIO left the AFL in 1936, during the height of that decade's overwhelming strike wave, the strikes were part of a broader uprising, involving rent strikes in New York and Chicago, marches on unemployment offices demanding relief all around the country, housewives organizing against high food prices. Many of these struggles were centered in black communities. There were also specific racial justice mobilizations for hiring black workers at companies that refused to do that, and against police brutality against black people. There was the Communist Party-led campaign against the legal lynching of eight, the eight black Scottsboro defendants, which lasted throughout the decades and ended in their being released. And all of this was going on. The CIO hired hundreds of Communist Party members as organizers during this time because of their experience and connections to all of these campaigns. 1936 was also the year of the founding of the National Negro Congress, with A. Philip Randolph as chairman. When the CIO would launch a union drive in an industry, the Congress would work with black church leaders to encourage their members to sign up. And CIO organizing committees made sure to practice affirmative action and to include anti-discrimination demands in their negotiations with employers. Another important nationwide group was the Workers' Alliance, an integrated left-led organization 
with many black and Mexican leaders and members that fought for unemployment relief and for their members to join picket lines instead of being used as scabs. The United Packing House Workers Union in Chicago won union representation in the context of having dozens of black rank-and-file communists inside the plants who had been trained in organizing in the rent strikes and other community movements and who demanded that the union include anti-racist demands in its contracts while supporting wider community campaigns as well. This approach was central in many other key sites of the 30s and 40s labor movement before the CIO expelled 11 Communist Party-led unions in 1948 and 9. For example, there was the powerful black-led Local 600 of the auto workers at Ford's largest factory in Dearborn, Michigan, and in the International Longshore and Warehousemen's Union on the West Coast. So when we see the LA teachers winning their great victory using the combination of militancy and social justice unionism, again with socialists playing a key role, we shouldn't be surprised. Our greatest victories have come that way.